Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. So I am one of those people that looked forward to school all the time, um, like Christmas vacation. I, I came back from Christmas vacation and was like, yeah, whole new semester, new books, um, new school supplies. And, and I'm still that way. So I, I may not be like you, but if you're the kind of person that listens to informational podcasts, I bet you are the kind of person that liked school and maybe still likes school. And that is why the great courses are for you. Uh, the Great Courses Plus is a sponsor of this show. And because of The Great Courses Plus, I now have, and you could have, unlimited access to learn from award-winning experts about anything that interests you. History, politics, science, hobbies like photography and cooking. There are over 8,500 lectures and you can watch on almost anything, your smartphone, tablet, laptop, TV, or stream the audio, uh, which is what I do because I'm a podcast person and much like you. And right now, as one of my listeners, you can enjoy The Great Courses Plus for free. I am currently listening to a course about behavioral economics. It's called Behavioral Economics When Psychology and Economics Collide. And it's really fascinating, would probably be really fascinating at any point in time. But I am listening to it in the context of, you know, why people uh, vote the way they do and why people make choices that don't seem rational to me in terms of their politics. And it's been really helpful uh, to kind of sort through that. One of the ways it's been helpful is actually just in defining rational, um, which is apparently economics don't define rational the way that you and I do, which is like lack of emotion. To them, rational is uh, simply uh, consistency in making choices, although people aren't always consistent either. And the courses are fun too. Uh, a lot of the examples um, in the behavioral economics class uh, are fun uh, and interesting um, and have to do with everyday situations uh, like the fact that if you pay people to donate blood, they are less likely to um, because it strips them of the good feeling that they have from donating blood. Uh and there's lots of just little things like that that you will learn. So I recommend that you check it out. Um, totally fascinating. And again, I find it particularly interesting in context of politics. You may may as well. The Great Courses Plus are lifelong learning at its best. So if you want to experience The Great Courses Plus too, they are giving my listeners an entire month of unlimited access to enjoy all of these lectures for free. You do need to sign up through a special URL thegreatcoursesplus.com slash friends. Again, this is a free month to listen to anything, listen to or watch any courses you want, over 8,500 available for free for a month. 
thegreatcoursesplus.com slash friends. Start your free month now. Again, that is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. I am especially happy with today's episode. It's a couple of conversations that I've been looking forward to having, and I, I think you'll you'll enjoy hearing them. I am going to talk to my friend Lizzie O'Leary, who is an old, old pal of mine, uh, who wrote a piece for The Cut, whose title I feel like uh, encapsulates our world today. The things I used to shrug off horrify me now. Uh, it is a column about just the crap um, that she specifically went through, you know, in her career. And I really resonated with me (laughs) because I've been through some of the same things. Uh, And we talk about that uh, and talk about how this moment has caused a lot of women to reevaluate their own experiences. But first, Adam Serwer from The Atlantic. He wrote a piece called The Nationalist Delusion that you may have heard about it. Uh, It's a lengthy piece. Um, We kind of get into it a lot, Uh, not just the piece itself, but the process through it. It's a important piece. Uh, It's about uh, our country's refusal to kind of look Trumpism in the face. And he walks us through why it's important we should do that and really what Trumpism is. Because uh, Lizzie and I talk about sexual harassment, sexual assault, I'm going to call this a trigger warning uh, right now. And it is. I feel weird um, how many trigger warnings I've put on my shows these days, but I know I shouldn't because we're just living in a time when, you know, life should have a trigger warning. And as I discuss with Lizzie, one of the upsides of what we're going through these days, this national reckoning we're having about sexual harassment and sexual assault, uh, is that women are starting to talk to people about it. Uh, and reaching out for assistance about it. And if you have been through something that you want to talk about that you think may fall under the category of sexual assault or sexual harassment, you can call RAIN. That number is 800-656-HOPE. 800-656-HOPE. They're also available online, uh, anonymous chat service. You are not alone. You are definitely not alone. So... If you want to talk about it, reach out. Someone will be there. And up first, Adam Serwer. So I'd like to welcome to the show Adam Serwer. He is a senior editor at The Atlantic covering politics. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, So I want to start off with uh, you reading maybe a section of your amazing piece, which I I don't want to scare people, but when I printed it out, it was 31 pages. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, it's 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 definitely the longest piece I've ever written. It's it, about 10,000 it, words. It is. Um, you're going to need to take some time. People, we need to take some time to sit down, grab a cup of coffee, you know, um, and really enjoy it. Uh, but I want to, people who maybe haven't read them, I'd love to give them a taste of it. So, yeah, if you wouldn't mind reading from, from the last bit, I, I don't think there are any spoilers here. I think it's still worth reading the whole thing. Sure. Um. Trumpism emerged from a haze of delusion, denial, pride, and cruelty, not as a historical anomaly, but as a profoundly American phenomenon. This explains how tens of millions of white Americans could pull the lever for a candidate running on a racist platform and justify doing so, and why a predominantly white political class would search so desperately for an alternative explanation for what it had just seen. 
to acknowledge the centrality of racial inequality to American democracy is to question its legitimacy, and so it must be denied. I don't mean to suggest that Trump's nationalism is impervious to politics. It is not invincible. Its earlier iterations have been defeated and can be defeated now. Abraham Lincoln began the Civil War believing that former slaves would have to be transported to West Africa. Lyndon Johnson began his political career as a segregationist. Both came to realize that the question of black rights in America is not mere identity politics, not a peripheral matter, but the central existential question of the republic. Nothing is inevitable. People can change. No one is irredeemable. But recognition precedes enlightenment. Nevertheless, a majority of white voters backed a candidate who assured them that they will never have to share this country with people of color as equals. That is the reality that all Americans will have to deal with, and one that most of the country has yet to confront. Yet at its core, white nationalism has and always will be a hustle, a con, a fraud that cannot deliver the broad-based prosperity it promises, not even to white people. Perhaps the most persuasive argument against Trumpist nationalism is not one its opponents can make in a way that his supporters will believe. But the failure of Trump's promises to white America may yet show that both the fruit and the tree are poison. Thank you so much. Uh, so the piece is an extended argument for that conclusion, basically. And I understand we, I don't want to focus too much on process here or structure, uh, but it is you know, a, a great a work of great length. And you've said, you said on Twitter, you spent a long time working on this. Yeah, I spent about 13 months working on it. Uh, I, I would say that the first things, the, the first words of this piece uh, were jotted down in um, maybe September of uh, 2016. Um, and, I, you know, and towards the end of the campaign, I, I went to a lot of rallies to talk to Trump supporters, specifically to ask them, you know, uh, do you think Trump is racist? What do you think about these remarks he's made about Latinos and Muslims, how do you feel when liberals say that Trump is racist? Because I, I wanted to sort of get an idea of how his supporters were um, understanding these things and, and why they still uh, felt so supportive of him. And what I found was that, you know, Hillary Clinton gave that big speech about the alt-right um, during her campaign. But what I found that these people were not, you know, these people were not like self-identified racists, right? These people would never go to like a Klan rally at a Confederate statue. They would never read the Daily Stormer. They would never, you know, they don't think of themselves that way. In fact, they think of themselves as anti-racist. They, you know, they, they said to me over and over, you know, uh, I, I think Trump loves everybody. I certainly do. I don't have any problem with anybody. Uh, you know, I, 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 I think discrimination is bad. And yet, even while they were saying these things, they were, you know, planning on pulling the lever for a candidate who was proposing uh, blatantly discriminatory policies from the Muslim ban to the mass deportations to, uh, you know, promising to make police uh, not have to be politically correct, which was clearly code for not being held accountable uh, for violence against uh, particularly uh, black people, but also, you know, anybody they come in contact with. Um, and, and this was very much, uh, you know, a core of his campaign. It wasn't the only reason why he won. Uh, the, the, you know, in the piece, I say there are other factors, but I do think it's an indispensable part of why he won. Um, and so I, I felt I, I felt really strongly about having to write about it in part because I, I felt like the political 
and media incentives against stating it plainly were so strong um, that it required, you know, a sort of exhaustive explanation of why things played out the way that they did. I, I almost, again, I, I feel like, like I don't want to focus too much on process, although it's fascinating to me on one level that this is, you know, such a, this story took so much time reporting that it is so exhaustive uh, because we well, live I would in, correct you there. Yeah. It's it's not that it took so much time reporting. It's actually that <laughs> I struggled mightily with writing it oh. uh, for a very long time. Um, it was, you know, it was not an easy piece to write. It, it, it required a lot of research and a lot of, uh, a lot of sort of the emotional angst that writers go through when they're trying to produce. Um, but I would say that, you know, a lot of the reporting was done, you know, before the election was even over. Um, but, you know, it took me a long time to sort of synthesize everything that I had seen and was seeing. That's, that itself is interesting to me. I, want, I kind of want to drill down on it, but first I will make the observation that it's interesting to hear that this took so long to produce, I'll put it that way, um, because we do live in this age where the news cycle moves so fast. The idea that a story could be relevant, you know, a year from when it was started, uh, it seems kind of incredible. And there is my the one thing I, I kept thinking about this piece um, is that... None of this is a surprise, right? Like, it's not shocking, or, or it shouldn't be. And yet, you did have to go through this, you know, making this argument via 10,000 words. Because we do keep not talking about this, right? There's still, you know, uh, mainstream media still produces think pieces on Trump voters. Does that kind of, I mean... Well, I, I think, you know... I think part of the issue is is that it's a very painful thing to talk about for everyone involved. It's painful for the people who didn't want Trump to win. It's painful for the people who voted for Trump. And it's painful because it requires sort of reckoning with this, you know, ideal of who we are and how we don't, um, you know, we, we don't meet up to it. So I think, you know, that conversation about who America is and what we believe in is like an ongoing conversation, right? It doesn't, it's not going to end in my lifetime, um, you know, because it, it, it began 250 years ago and it's going to keep going until there's no more America. But I think it's, I think it's still relevant in part because we're trying to unravel this thing, but it's extremely hard for us to talk frankly about it in part because of what it says about ourselves and the people we care about. Is Joel Anderson our mutual friend? Is he a pal uh, of yours? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Joel was my colleague at BuzzFeed, and and he's a he's a he's a friend. Right. Uh, he had a comment on Twitter that I cannot shake, um, which has to do with basically white fragility, uh, which is sort of what you're talking about, or is part of what you're talking about, which is that white people have such a problem facing their part in this. Uh, they shy away from confrontation about it. His somewhat sardonic, um, I think, uh, observation was, imagine if they actually had to experience racism. Um, they wouldn't be able to handle it. But is that, do you think that's that's driving a lot of this like chin stroking is just basically white people not wanting to face their own part? I think there's like a, a lot of different incentives driving this. Um 
that are commercial, that are personal, that are political. Look, the Democratic Party is not going to win back Congress by calling Trump voters racist. It's not a politically usable history, right? So it's not it's not for them to emphasize. If you're in the press, like you, you don't want to uh, alienate your potential subscribers, your readers, your listeners, your viewers, your fans. Um, you know, and just as like a person, if you have Trump voters in your family, you um, because of the sort of loaded term of racism, which has come to like be a kind of epithet in its own right, you know, divorced from the question of racist outcomes. Um, you know, you, you don't want to condemn, you know, your friends, lovers, family members in this way. And I think that all kind of combines to create you know, uh, uh, in, in, in a country that is white people are the demographic majority, it, it combines to create a cultural environment where it's really hard to have a frank discussion of how uh, racism works as a matter of institutional and political power and not simply sort of individual, um, you know, I- I- individual remarks or comments or beliefs. Yeah, sometimes on this show, uh, I've used the phrase that uh, being called a racist is white people's kryptonite. Uh, it <laughs> it sort of makes us melt, um, you know, that we freeze up about it. I, I've i started to use myself and I encourage other people to use white supremacy as the term uh, when describing these systems, because in a weird way, although I grew up um, and in my you know college uh, experience, white supremacy was considered like the most extreme thing you could say, the most extreme form of racism. Uh, it seems to be a better description of the operation of what's happening now. Uh, and it sort of takes the it's, it's actually uh, to use the language of the social justice warrior. It's the putting uh, people first kind of language. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the way that I like you're not a racist, it. you're practicing racism. Like that's the right now. I mean, I think, you know, uh, the the uh, Jay Smooth, who, you know, who's a great video blogger and DJ, you know, he he he's always argued that it's important to talk about racist actions rather than racist people, because it makes it easier to focus on what the problem is. You know, it's hard to say what's in people's hearts. But, you know, and, and part of the reason why I wrote this essay was, you know, you have to look at this outcome, whatever people were feeling in the voting booth. Um, you know, you have to look at the political outcomes of, of, of casting those ballots. Um, but I also think, you know, I mean, this question of like white supremacy, I mean, you know, obviously it's, it's a difficult, um, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about this recently. My colleague Van Newkirk had an essay about it after, you know, Jonathan Chait uh, suggested that the left was engaging in a kind of creep in the way that they were using the term. And again, I, I actually think using even using white supremacy from like a political perspective is probably bad. But in terms of like accurately describing what we're talking about, I think it's hard to avoid that there's a significant portion of the United States that feels as though white people are entitled to political and cultural hegemony. And and I think it's pretty clear that one of those people is the president of the United States. Um, and I think, you know, you can describe, it, 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 we can sort of rationalize. I think people prefer to have, you know, the idea of white supremacy quarantine to sort of extremists, right? You know, the KKK, uh, neo-Nazis, yahoos. But if you define it in that way, I, I think it's sort of unavoidable that there are a lot more people who believe that uh, than we really want to talk about. Yeah, and there are a lot more people who believe that than who, in their, even in like their heart of hearts, would say that they hate black people. You right, and and, and and this is a part of the story. I mean, I, I go back, um, 
to the to the Jim Crow South, and I talk about how white Southerners viewed um, integration efforts, and they saw the federal government as this like oppressive force, and they did not think of themselves, despite the fact that they were upholding a racial caste system, they did not think of themselves as being racist. Like they would talk about how much they loved black people, and you know, I've known black people all my life, and I I would I would give the shirt off my back to a black person. I just don't want to eat at a restaurant with them or have them <laughs> right. in my school. Like you know, the, 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 the you know. Part of what I was trying to say was like, this is not just the Trump thing. This is a thing that we've been wrestling with as a society, you know, since our inception, because it's part of the contradiction of a country founded on the ideal of everybody being created equal where you're allowed to own slaves. Um, you know, and so it's just it's it's just like a fun. It's a contradiction that's just like a fundamental part of us. And that's part of why it's so difficult to deal with. Would you buy a t-shirt for $50 if you knew it only cost $7 to make? I, I wouldn't. I don't think you would either. And with Everlane, you never overpay for quality clothes. Everlane only makes premium essentials using the finest materials without traditional markups. And they tell you their real costs so you know they're never overpaying. In fact, uh, on Twitter the other day, a listener uh, was apparently checking this out on Everlane's site and tweeted at me and Everlane that they could not find uh, the transparent uh, listing of prices and where things were manufactured. And Everlane was really responsive and tweeted back at them where to find it. When the person still said they couldn't find it, they gave them a screenshot. So they are completely transparent and very helpful. Uh, and I think in this day and age, transparency about the manufacturing process is feels especially important because we all know there's a lot of abuses out there. And the other reason why that's really helpful is because it does wind up saving you money. Because they sell directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers, uh, and their clothes look better, cost less, and last longer. Um, I have a few Everlane things. I have their high-waisted jeans. I have t-shirt. I have a really, really great um, crew neck cashmere sweater. I cannot recommend that highly enough. They are stylish uh, and classic without being boring. Uh, I also really like their shoes, uh, which have a little bit of a different fit than traditional uh, flats or heels. The heels are super comfortable and they have a higher toe. Um, I don't know how else to describe it. Their toe, it covers more of your toe, uh, which for some reason makes it more comfortable and they have like a grippy heel to them. Uh, they're just a little bit different, but in a great way, people will notice them and they come in cool colors too. I have a pair in orange. So whether it's a day heel, basic cotton tee, or modern snap backpack, you will look great and feel comfortable without spending a fortune. So go to everlane.com slash friends. Again, that's everlane.com slash friends. But we have to name it if, if, we're going to, if we're going to do something about it. Like you use the metaphor of a pothole, right? That like we're in the middle of a time when lots of people, including the president of the United States, seem to believe that white people deserve or and should be, you know, have hegemony over people of color. And he, the only thing he's been successful in, and you point this out too, the only success that Trump has had has been to continue this campaign of, you know, using state violence or advocating state violence against people of color. He hasn't done anything else. <laughs> well, he, he certainly, you know, he's either retreated on some of his claims, you know, or he's done the opposite of what he said he was going to do. Right. Right. Um, you know, he, 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 there was this whole sort of economic populist element to the, to his campaign. And then he promptly put Goldman Sachs people in charge of the economy. He's currently working on 
you know, Congress is currently working on passing a huge regressive tax cut that is going to shift the burden from the poor to the rich while cutting services for everybody in between. Um, you know, but the thing that he has remained steadfast on is the sort of ethno-nationalist component of his campaign. Uh, you know, we're seeing an immigration crackdown. We've seen him push the Muslim ban. We've even seen him talk about it as a Muslim ban mm-hmm. to the frustration of his own lawyers who are trying to argue that it's not rooted in, in religious animus. Uh, you know, his Justice Department has pulled, has explicitly pulled back on policing the police and defending voting rights and, you and know, white supremacists and also pulled back on policing white supremacists. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think there, and this is one of the reasons why I tried to focus on policy in the piece. And I didn't talk about a lot of the sort of outrageous remarks mm-hmm. Trump made during the campaign, because I want to make it clear that this is not about sort of interpersonal rudeness, right? I mean, this is about, federal policy and in the ways in which the values that Trump espoused during the campaign are the ones, uh, you know, that he's continued to pursue while in office. And his, you know, core supporters, and I'm not talking about the marginal Trump voter, I'm talking, you know, after all, I'm talking about the, his his core people. These people, um, you know, still support him and they're going to keep supporting him because in a way, and certainly I think Trump himself, based on his own, you know, tendency to uh, get involved in all these, uh, you know, culture war blowups, you know, particularly with uh, black public figures. I think Trump understands his own appeal to his base as being an ethno-nationalist one. He thinks that that's what they like. Uh, and I think, you know, you can't really discount that in terms of you can't discount his own understanding of his own political strength when you're evaluating, you know, what it is that these people voted for and what they're continuing to support. Right. And to the point that we have to name it, and I mentioned your pothole metaphor, um, you say, you know, both supporters and opponents usually stop short of calling these policies racist. It's as if there were a pothole in the middle of the street that everyone studiously avoided, but most insisted did not exist, even as they swerved around it. I, I That called to mind the uh, news that came out, I think, last week that uh, Jeff Sessions is actually asking people when they talk about terrorism, he asks what country the the person's pa- family is from. Right. So the, the, this was a report in the Washington Post. And, you know, he'll ask about terrorism and they'll say, oh, this person was born in the United States. And they're like, oh, but what's their country of origin? As though you could discern a person's tendency right. to be a terrorist through their genetic inheritance. Well, he and clearly just, believes that. <laughs> right. I mean, it's just a shocking it's a shocking thing for the person who's essentially in charge of defending American civil rights to to do. I mean, it's it's but it is consistent again, you know, and and with the values that Trump espoused during the campaign. And I want to point out that, you know, it was Steve Bannon who said that Jeff Sessions was sort of the intellectual godfather of Trumpism. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, on on all this stuff on immigration, on law enforcement, on on Muslim civil rights, uh, you know, Jeff Sessions was very clear in the Senate in terms of, you know, the press releases he was putting out every week uh, that he views, uh, you know, he, 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 you know, views immigration as a threat. He thinks that police should not be investigated. He thinks that there are only bad apples. There are no systemic issues. He thinks Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's perfectly constitutional to ban people from the country based on their religion. Right. People who are chin stroking over whether or not Trump can survive, you know, passing this tax law that seems so like almost cartoonishly uh, diametrically opposed to what he ran on, are forgetting that that's not his real appeal. And as long as he says um, and does things that oppress 
people of color, his core supporters will not leave him. Like, well, I do. I do think that there's an element of that, that these people feel like Trump really speaks for him and they're not going to abandon him, you know, based on their lives getting more miserable because of something he does. I think it's like pretty likely that, in fact, they'll continue to blame the people um, who are different from them. I mean, the example I use in the piece is, you know, the the draft riots in the 1860s. There was this, you know, um, there was this draft law uh, during the Civil War, but it exempted wealthy people. Essentially, wealthy people could um, buy themselves out of the draft. And the poor and working class Irish in New York City essentially went nuts and, you know— there was this huge racist draft riot uh, where they were, you know, trying to lynch black people. And, you know, the, the 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 point of that story is just that, you know, it's not that the Irish didn't have like a legitimate grievance that there was this draft law that like rich people could buy themselves out of that. That that was genuinely messed up. Um, but their response to it was not to punish the rich. It was to punish the people who were one rung below them on the uh, on the scale. And I think that. You know, if people think that this tax bill is automatically going to lead to enlightenment among <laughs> uh, Trump supporters, that their guy isn't who he said he was, I, I'm not sure that that's going to happen. I mean, I, I wouldn't begin to predict, but I don't. I certainly don't think it's inherent. I actually was interviewing a, a neuroscientist the other day, as one does, um, about belief <laughs> systems, and he said. I, I'm going to be writing about this at, at some point, but I don't want to scoop myself. But he was telling me like the brain is actually kind of a belief machine. Like it's programmed to believe things. It's hard to change the patterns that we establish. And that the level of misery, like the brain will choose to believe its established patterns rather than get out of misery. You know, like it will, it, it, misery does not affect that b- belief system. You ha- it, it, there has to be a tremendous shock to the system for people to question their, the, the framework that they view reality through. Like, it, yeah, I mean, I, th- I it, think that's true. And I think it applies to everyone. Yeah, um, you yeah. know, it's not just one, you know, part of the, part of the, part of the reason why I call it the nationalist delusion is that, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a delusion that's limited to Trump supporters. And I try to illustrate this throughout the piece that it, there, there are reasons that people who don't like Trump at all have to tell themselves that this is not what happened. Um, you know, so I, I really do think this is a this is a much larger problem than Trump. He's a manifestation of it. Um, but he, you know, but it's certainly, it's not just about him. Oh, definitely. And I actually think one, you know, this, your piece includes media criticism, essentially, which I think is important and needs to happen, that there is this impulse, you know, on the part of a lot of white journalists to keep, telling the story of economic, um, you know, <laughs> of this being about an economic uh, disappointment, right? Uh, economic anxiety, I guess. I forgot the joke. Um, right. And they just keep doing it. And I remember being on a panel with fucking Chris Eliza, and someone <laughs> asked the question, are you saying that Trump voters are racist? And I said, well, I don't want to use the term racist, but they're hearkening for a time when white people had more power. And to me... <laughs> You know, that appeal has, you know, that is a racist appeal, right? And then Chris Eliza came on and he was like, well, I just refuse to call a whole group of people racist. And I was like, you know, I mean, okay. Right. I mean, this this, 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 this sort of, I mean, I understand why it would be bad for a reporter to do that. It's not good for your business to insult your customers. Um, But if we're talking about this idea that, 
it's unrealistic for a whole group of people to be racist. I mean, look, Jim Crow lasted until, you know, legally lasted until 1964, 65. You know, interracial marriage was disapproved of by most of the population until the 90s. I mean, as I mentioned in this piece, David Duke got a majority of white votes in Louisiana in, in a Louisiana Senate race in 1990. Like, you know, this idea, you know, the legalized discrimination in the United States had the support of millions and millions of people. And this idea that that's somehow unfathomable is, you know, it's, it's very bizarre to me because it's very recent. This history is very recent. And those people who, you know, who supported that or who voted for George Wallace and his presidential campaign, you know, those people are, some of them are still here and some of them had kids and they raised their kids in their belief system. You know, this idea that, you know, somehow, uh, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't describe something as what it is because it could offend a lot of people. I mean, you know, that's probably a good business strategy. But, you know, as a journalist, like, I'm not sure it's a very moral one. Mm. Now, I feel a little weird asking this question, but I'm going to and you can tell me. Uh, if, <laughs> OK, I'm, I'm, I'm preparing yeah. myself. Like, so you yourself are not a white person. Am I correct? Uh, no. Um, my, so my, just by way of explaining my background, my father is a white Jew and my mother is a black woman. Right. Um, and my parents uh, raised me in Washington, D.C. for the most part. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, you said no. So you that is a no, I am. I asked the question weird. So. No, I mean. You're biracial. I, it, like we'll just. Yes. But, but also you wrote one. I. Go ahead. I, I mean, so I I, I I try to avoid, um, I think biracial is important as like a cultural right. context. Like I am from a mixed, a racially mixed family. Right. Um, but I just identify as black. Okay. That is maybe the question I should have asked. Um, because I get weirded out about asking about these things, but I think it is a part of this story. Um, because I think it has been my friends who are people of color, my friends in journalism who are people of color, who have seen this story. You know, like seeing the story that you're talking about, um, like Joel, our you know, mutual mutual mm. pal Joel, like he was talking about uh, how this Louisiana story, he remembers it. Right. Mm-hmm. And he remembers the same pattern that you described there, which is it's so eerie to see the same kinds of economic anxiety, class, you know, resentment, um, resentment against Washington being used to explain something that seems so on its face of it to someone who can see it to be. A racist appeal. Well, I think you know part of part of being a minority in the United States is that you're able to see the majority more clearly than they can see you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, like I said in the piece, you know, uh, this idea that a lot of white people find the idea that there are millions of racist white people to be unfathomable, but it's the world that you know millions of people of color live in like we we take it for granted that that's the case right um and not everybody i I don't want to speak for everybody but certainly a lot of people do uh and 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 we do because we go to our jobs or we you know we have experiences with strangers or you know with the police and it just you know we have grown up taken for granted that this is a world in which um which is going to look at you and see you as a certain thing and treat you differently because of that. Um, and so, you know, I think it's just, it's, the, I would say that it was very clear um, to 
certainly to like every black person I know what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, but that was lost in translation in the, in sort of intraracial conversations in part because, uh, you know, because of this, you know, delusion that people just don't want to believe that the world could be that kind of place, that this could be that kind of country, that this thing could, this terrible thing could happen. And so they just sort of close themselves off to the possibility while, you know, for, I mean, you know, for people who, for, for Muslim Americans, for Latino Americans, for black Americans, you know, we're waking up, um, you know, in November, 2016, thinking this is what our country thinks of us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this, this is, this is really what they think. This is, this is who they are. Um, and I think that, um, that realization is one that's been extremely difficult to communicate to white people. Um, and I, I wasn't necessarily trying to communicate it in this piece, but I was trying to tell a story that I felt like me and my family and, you know, lots of people that I love, um, you know, we felt like we were watching unfold before our eyes, um, but that, you know, we were sort of being told by every institution of official importance that it, it hadn't happened. And that's a kind of maddening, that, that's a kind of maddening thing. It is. I, I want to be careful about drawing, you know, too exact a parallel or making the metaphor too perfect. But uh, uh, in when we talk about patriarchy, we call that gaslighting, right? Yeah, like, I mean, it, there there is a sort of gaslighting element to it where people, you know, you see something and you know what it is and someone tells you it's something else. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that this, I, I think a lot of the media coverage, um, you know, not just over the past year, but during the election sort of felt like that. It felt like, you know, we're, we're listening to what Trump is saying and it seems obvious to us and we're hearing it. And then, you know, the press would report that it's not what we think it is um, or it's something else. Um, and, you know, part of the point of this piece was to just say clearly what the thing is and why we didn't want to say the thing um, and why it, it was so hard for all of us to recognize it, um, which is that there's a tremendous amount of cultural pressure not to. Yeah. I'm reminded, again, I want to be careful about drawing two, two exact parallels here, but I am reminded of the discussion we're having about sexual assault and sexual harassment right now, uh, which is that you— hear from a lot of men, I had no idea that this was so bad, right? Um, I had no, the, the idea that there could be this pervasive, almost constant um, intrusion onto women's bodies, like, is unimaginable, like, literally unimaginable to some people, some men. And whereas women are like, hey, like, this is my experience. It's not a surprise to me. Like, if you look at all the coverage, like, women may be surprised by a particular man, mm. but not surprised by the number um, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, look, I'm a man. I'm certainly not. I mean, there's no way for me to understand. Um, to, to, I mean, it's like, not an I, exact I'm reading parallel. the stories. It's not it's not an exact parallel, but but there is no simply no way for me to understand the pervasiveness of that because it's not targeting me. Right. Um, you know, and I think it's obviously I think uh, a lot of women I've seen express fr- frustration about m- m- men even now who who like it in our inability to quite grasp how deep the problem is but I, I mean i do think there is i mean obviously there there's something that's going to be lost in translation there because you know we we simply don't i mean we we, we, we can't don't imagine know, we each don't other's know. experiment and also i really right. should be i really should be and i 
pledge to talk to more women of color about this um, and what their experience is, because I obviously cannot even come close to imagining what that is. Um, right. I mean, we, we've we just sort of touched, there's been some good coverage of that. I mean, we've just really t- touched the tip of the iceberg. The Washington Post had a great piece about the restaurant industry. Um, you know, but yeah, I mean, the I do hotel think, industry too. I do think that's it's it's not an exact parallel, but it is a good example of you know something that can be difficult for someone to understand because they didn't experience it or they're not likely to experience it because uh, you know they they they're you know the the world is constructed in such a way to make them avoid it. I mean, obviously you have exceptions like uh, you know Terry Crews uh, was sexually <laughs> yeah. harassed. Um, even though he's a big, strong, uh, man and he's heterosexual, but, you know, for the most part, this is something that, that obviously women experience and it's hard for a man like me to really grasp the scale of the problem in the way that, that, that most women do. So I want to go back, if you don't mind, to talk about the fact that this was a difficult for you to write. And I have, I was reading this knowing your family background and thinking mm-hmm. about you being at these rallies. Um, what was that like for you? Oh, well, I should probably explain. Um, I am what, what I like to affectionately call a light bright. I'm very light skinned. <laughs> um, I can pass. Um, I often pass for many different things. I've passed for Puerto Rican. I've passed for Filipino. I've passed for white. I've passed for, I've, I've passed for a lot of things, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and going to these rallies, look, you know, again, this is not like going to a white supremacist rally. Right. There was, you know, I saw some people who, um, were covering it like that and who described it like that, but that was actually not my feeling. Um, these were not those types of racist extremists. They were normal conservative Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I found it very helpful to talk to them in part because it it made that clear to me. Right. These are not people who think of themselves as racist. These are not people who think of themselves as being malicious. These are not people who think of themselves as having ill will. And I think that would have been, it would have been, you know, that wouldn't have been as clear to me. And the piece itself would not have been as good if I hadn't gone out there and talked to them about their feelings and, and had that made clear to me. But I guess I was sort of wondering, I'm almost wondering, like they, they spoke to you differently than they would have if they had seen you as a black person. I'm guessing. I mean, I I, I don't know. Um, yeah, there's I think, no way to you know. Here, I guess. It's it's interesting. You know, my friend Jamel Bowie, who's a who's a writer for Slate. Um, you know, he when he goes to rallies like this, I mean, like it, it can go both ways, right? People can go out of their way to try to like be nice to you to prove that they're not, right. <laughs> you know, they're not that kind of person, or they can be wary of you because they think you're 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 going to write something bad about them but like i said again these are not people who are you know the, the, they're not the they they're not nazis like they're not going to they're not going to see a person of color and be like i don't like that person mm-hmm. like they are uh, you know people who probably interact with people of color every day i mean that, this this is part of the point right this is these people are, this constituency is much more powerful than the extremists that we saw marching in Charlottesville, um, you know, because there are so many of them and they were not resistant to this overtly um, prejudiced appeal from Donald Trump. And so like, that's, you know, that's a scary thing, but individually, like, you know, they're not, 
you know, they're perfectly nice people. If you, if you said hi to them, they'd say hi back. They ask you how you were doing. Like they're not, they're not, you know, monsters. Right. I don't Um, actually say, my questions about this are not about whether or not they're monsters. I guess I, I, I just think I am interested in this, right? I am interested in how the interpersonal does and doesn't connect to people's feelings about policy. mm -hmm. And I guess I'm not surprised by what you're saying. And I, but it's so good that you did it. Well, look, I will say that there were definitely a couple of people who said things about black people to me that they probably wouldn't have said if they knew I was black. But that's not a new experience for me. <laughs> um, that, that's like that, that's like a, a foundational experience yeah. in my life I where people am, think that they're safe and they, right. they can they can express themselves frankly and, and, and they don't, you know, I'm sitting there incognito and they have no idea. But did you say incognito? Yes. Um, I've never heard that before. So uh, thank you. Um, well, you know, and so, you know, certainly I heard some of those things, but they weren't, you know, they weren't representative of most of the people that I spoke to. Like there was one woman I spoke to who was extremely angry about Hillary Clinton having the mothers of the movement on stage during the DNC. And she was talking about how they were criminals and they, they didn't deserve to be there. And, you know, Donald Trump was going to set it straight, but she was like the, outlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I mean? And I wanted to give, you know, I, and I didn't focus on those people because I didn't want the piece to feel like a cheap shot. Right. I wanted to get like, you know, the, the, the average Trump voter, not the most racist Trump voter I could find. Mm-hmm. So I keep circling around this. So do you think you could name, is there a way to talk about what made this piece difficult for you? Um, I had, um, I had an idea, um, but it took a long time to sort of, first of all, I, I, there was an entire emotional journey that I went through from the beginning of the year to the end of the year um, that was, that informed this piece. I mean, you know, the the Confederate flag stuff, for ex- the Confederate um, statue stuff, for example, was like a big part, like thinking about the lost cause mm-hmm. and that particular uh manifestation of the uh, of this delusion um thinking about you know and i you know i I was reading a lot of books about uh the history of race and the working class and it just it was a long process of really sort of distilling my thoughts but also finding these threads in american history that um you know they weren't it's not like it's not like I knew all this stuff when I began the essay. I mean, the the David Duke stuff, I actually found sort of as a fluke. I was reading David Rodiger's The Wages of Whiteness, which is about race and the construction of the white working class. And he has like an aside in there about how, you know, this guest on the Today Show basically described the Duke the, the, the Duke performance in the 1990 Louisiana Senate race as, you know, essentially that era's term for economic anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, look, you know, and he's a Marxist historian. He was like, look, as Marxist historians, like as Marxists, we should have a, a more sophisticated analysis of class than what you're going to see on the Today Show. Um, and that itself was, I was like, I was reading that and I was like, huh. And then I just, you know, I went back to, you know, the newspaper archives and I started reading all this stuff and it just sort of blew my mind that there was this echo of the Trump campaign and it, 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 up to and including Trump himself describing mm-hmm. why, very perceptively, why Duke, uh, you know, had appealed so strongly uh, to this particular constituency. Um, 
and you know so that i mean that was that was just a total fluke but and and, and it was a lot of it was a lot of like stumbling onto things reading things remembering things that i'd forgotten but also being inspired by real events i mean by charlottesville by the sort of this sort of crazy veneration of robert e lee um you know there was just there were there were like a million different things that happened over the course of the year that spurred you know little small advances in the text um, and it didn't really sort of come together as a thing until the summer. Um, and, and from then it's still, it, it was, there was still a lot of work to be done, but it was sort of a coherent idea, um, that I had put together, but it was just a really, you know, it was a lot of, it was a lot of different things that nudged like little pieces of the text forward. I'm interested. I, I'm always interested in writer's process. Uh, well, I'm so glad that, you know, it happened. Uh, it's a really, really wonderful piece. Thank you. And uh, there's really lots of little nuggets of wisdom, and I'm I, I hesitate to say humor, but there's wit um, there. <laughs> uh, there's definitely, I mean, there's a joke or two in there. Yeah, uh, a little bit of gallows humor. But. Yeah, and I, I think it's important. Um, you may think, especially people who listen to this podcast, may think they know this story. You know, we talk about it a lot, um, but the strength of your argument, you know, the detail and the fact that you do build it on policy and you don't make it a cheap shot, which I think I personally probably have been guilty of cherry picking some of the worst, worst evidence um, or worst examples. And by worst examples, I mean the ones that are most pleasingly colorful um, about whether or not racism exists on the right. Uh, And you're, you aren't doing that. Um, You're doing it like sheerly through policy. Uh, it's if people did not like the Nazi next door story, um, you don't have to comment on this. Um, this is the inverse of that story, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, that story, I think it, it, that, that story was kind of a train wreck, but I think it was not, you know, I'm I'm not against, you know, writing about Nazis or profiling Nazis, but I, I felt like the reporter did not turn over enough rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, for for writing that piece, I didn't think it was. It's not that they shouldn't have necessarily done it, but uh, I didn't think what they had was um worth publishing on its own. Right. I guess I, the way I would put it is that like that story sought to reveal to people that the person living next door to you could be a Nazi, uh, and how whoa how weird how 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 and sort of relied mm-hmm. on the shock of that. And your story, um, I think takes people on a journey that allows them to realize that they themselves or people that they love may be supporting policies that enable white supremacy. Right. I mean, I think the, the, the problem is the problem is attempting to quarantine um, racism to these limited precincts where right. it's okay to call this person racist, but it's not okay to discuss uh, policies that may be racist or outcomes that may be racist because that's going to hurt someone's feelings. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a good point. <laughs> then you telling me the it's point a good that you point. just made. Yeah, no, the point that you just made. Sorry, not my point. Obviously, I think my point is good, but I, you know what? We I think we both. I, I actually hadn't thought of it that way. So yeah. Um, well, I think you know, hey, you know, white people don't stop being such snowflakes, right? Um, uh, thank you for coming on the show. And oh, thank you for having me, and thank and, you for all the nice things you said. Oh, well, we'll have you on again. I hope. Thanks. Thank you. So on this show, 
we actually talk to magazine writers all the time. Adam Serwer on on this particular episode uh, from The Atlantic was just on. And it happens because I love magazines. I think magazines are still one of the best places to get your information. I love the long form essay. Uh, I love deeply reported stuff. And there's just no other place you can do it except in a magazine. But who wants to have like actual paper magazines to cart around all the time? That is why I use Texture. That is why you should use Texture. Uh, the Atlantic is actually on Texture, uh, as is uh, The New Yorker, um, as is a bunch of other magazines, um, from Rolling Stone to Sports Illustrated to also I like cooking and architecture magazines. They are on Texture. And you don't need to subscribe to the whole you know year. You can just read the articles that you want. Uh, Time uh, and Wired are also available. And my listeners can start a free trial at Texture. Go to texture.com slash friends. And if you continue to use Texture, you can get it for just $9.99 a month. That is over 30% off of their listed price. So again, that is a free trial. And then $9.99 a month, over 30% off their listed price. It's a way of indulging your magazine addiction without breaking your back. There are also gifts options available. Uh, it's the holidays. If you know someone else that would appreciate texture, uh, you can give them the gift of like 200 magazines. So again, go to texture.com slash friends to start your free trial. Texture.com slash friends. So welcome to the show, Lizzie O'Leary, host of Marketplace Weekend. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's, it's good to talk to you. It's good to talk to you too. It's so weird to like introduce you because I know like we go back way, way, back. way, <laughs> way back, which is why I wanted to talk to you. Uh, yeah, because you, it, we are talking mainly the pivot of our conversation or the, mm. the peg for our conversation is a piece you wrote for New York Magazine, the title of which could actually be the title of a memoir about the last few years. I think the things I shrugged off then horrify me now. Yeah, <laughs> that is applicable to like every piece of what is happening in culture today, I feel like. Um, and the reason I wanted to specifically, specifically talk to you is that I feel like you and I were about the same age. We kind of yeah. had parallel experiences in DC, um, in the media and right about the same time, right totally. about the same time. And I think, yeah, everything that you, and we'll talk about what, talk about what you shrugged off that horrifies you now. We'll talk about the meat of what you were, of it and then maybe, then maybe spin into some other stuff. Sure. I mean, what I what I really wanted to write about and, and what I was thinking about so much sort of as the first Harvey Weinstein stories broke and actually before some of the others, um, I think possibly the Mark Halpern story had broken by the time I, I wrote this. I, I honestly can't remember because mm-hmm. there's so much happening was all of the stuff that I just sort of like slogged my way through, particularly as a young producer, booker, reporter, that I sort of defined as being in this gray area that Mm -hmm. I didn't quite consider actionable harassment, but you still know isn't okay. Like the thing you tell your friend about, or in my case, you know, an editor or a producer like, oh, well, that was really weird. And and you're sort of left with this moment of, well, did I misunderstand something? Or was it a one-off? Or was he drunk when he said that to me, even though he knows I'm a reporter? Mm-hmm. You know, all of those kinds of things that to, to me didn't quite 
rise to the bar of actionable. Although in this piece, I, I did cite two things that happened to me when I was in my 20s that I reported and went nowhere, which I think is probably not uncommon for some women to, you know, mm-hmm. say, okay, this person did something inappropriate. And then your boss is like, yeah, well, he's a good guy. I'm sure you just misunderstood that. Mm-hmm. Or that's just so-and-so being so-and-so. It's just so-and-so. Yeah, it's just the way he is. I know. Well, I think this is an important part of the moment we're in which is women of our age, women of a certain <laughs> age, um, particularly, maybe I'm just universalizing my own experience, but at least it's you and me, us too. Uh, but, and also our, our friend, Tracy, um, mm-hmm. my best friend, my best friend, Tracy, uh, is a mutual friend of ours. She and I have known each other for the length of time that you and I know each other. And so she's one of the people that I would go to. And I was one of the people that she would go to with these, can you believe XYZ happened? Right. And so we have had a conversation which is like, wow, like that shit is like, that was assault. Yeah. That was like, we, and we would laugh about it too. Like I just had this conversation with the pod save guys that they, I told them like my big story about a media personality, you know, assaulting me and Favs remembers when I told him that story and then we laughed about it as like a creepy thing to happen. That's a creepy thing to happen. Sure. And and there's so much of that. And what I really don't know, and we and just I, didn't I, process. I was going to say it. It was just not processed in my no. mind as assault, although it had that psychological effect on me. It did send the message to me mm. that my, my body is forfeit, right? But I yeah did not process that that way intellectually or emotionally. Well, and I wonder. I've been thinking about this a lot. So I am about to turn forty two, and I now have younger colleagues who I feel, you know, kind of responsible for in in many ways. And I I don't want them to think the way I thought, which was, well, okay, which professional fight am I going to have? Am Mm -hmm. I going to have the fight about my story and I'm going to get called, you know, difficult and feisty or obnoxious or whatever? But I'm willing to have that fight about a story, whereas I'm just going to shut up and take it when someone says something inappropriate about my body or what date I went on or can the senator have your phone number, you know, Mm -hmm. or you're just like, I'm going to let that roll off my back because I have work to do. And that's more important to me. I, I don't want my younger colleagues to have to make that calculation. And also, like, like we used to refer to these things also as drunken fumbles. There is a big part that drink plays in this. Mm-hmm. Um, Huge. And as a, someone who's now sober, like, I look back on a lot of this with some, uh, I'm really working through my guilt and shame. <laughs> Congratulations on your new tattoo, by oh, the way. Thank you, by the way. Thank you. Um, I, uh, I got a, for listeners who obviously cannot see, um, I got a sixth star um, on my arm for my sixth year of sobriety. And yes, I am planning on getting a star every year. And yes, I know that means I may have an arm full of stars. And that is the point. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but so I think about what a big role like booze played. And for me though, and the reason like the thing that I am thinking through is like, I would tell myself that it was my fault if I was drinking. Totally. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. if I was also drinking, then it surely I cannot say anything about this to anyone because what, but weren't you drunk too? You know? Um, but it still wasn't okay. Like, that's the part that I'm like, I, I actually just had like a shiver of shame just now. Like, literally. Like, thinking about this. Thinking about this. Yeah, I I think I said this in the, in the piece, but we had this thing happen when I was 
in Wyoming over the winter doing interviews with two younger female producers. And this interview subject kept um, trying to kind of, quote unquote, helpfully hold my producer's hand as she was holding the microphone, which, mm-hmm. first of all, is just like a radio no-no. Like, we actually, we're professionals. We know how to do this. Um, and I didn't step in enough. I, I sort of helped her move out of the way. But on the way back from that interview, they started asking me about kind of various, like, oh, have you ever been sexually harassed while you were working? Mm-hmm. And I started laughing mm-hmm. because the the catalog of incidents is so large. And yet, when I had this conversation with my mother, she was sort of saying like, well, yeah, the things that happened to you are terrible, but boy, let me tell you what it was like working in 1968. You know, so like it was, I don't, I don't know where all of this falls on this continuum, but I do think that the suck it up mentality that I was definitely feeling and that you were feeling in the sort of like, well, what did I do to get myself into this situation? Hopefully that's changing. Yeah. Maybe. I, I actually have also been thinking a lot about the word survivor mm. because I did realize this morning and tweeted about how I don't, I know that I don't like the word accuser. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we're kind of, we're a lot of journalists are letting that word do a little too much work. And that when we talk about accusers coming forward, this it, it calls to mind um, the image of someone standing up in a court of law and pointing. And I think that sort of underscores a kind of hysteria that I don't even want to use that word that may, isn't necessarily happening right now, but it sort of makes it feel like that's happening if it's like accusers. Um, and so a conversation happened about what words should we use and someone offered a survivor and someone I talk about, I've talked about my experience before, both this, what I cannot help always qualify as somewhat trivial (laughs) experience Uh, that I had in a workplace. And I've had worse happen to me. And I always feel like, well, that part, I'm not, that part you can call me a survivor about, but you can't call me a survivor about this other one because that was not that serious. And then I was thinking, you know what, when we talk about people who survive bombings or who survive wars, we don't make a we don't declare a difference between someone who survived with no injuries and someone who survived with injuries right like they're both survivors yeah they are although i don't want to but this is also gets to this thorny issue of like can can you how do you have a word for what people largely women have gone through while also recognizing that there's like various varying levels of monstrosity mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. and I, I don't know the answer to that I really don't yeah I don't know I mean I was thinking like maybe survivor is more applicable than I thought because it, yeah, I, I was no, I think you're right because I want to validate like all the stuff that we shrugged off right like we're still yeah, survivors yeah. like that was that was something to survive to survive <laughs> Like it was not like we had to do things to get through that, and that well, affected the how we thought ourselves. Yeah, no, then there's the argumentative part. I mean, it's just want to be like, I was your colleague, and you did this thing that was so not okay in an office. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. I, I really don't. I mean, I think I certainly like survivor better than accuser because also, you know, there's just I don't think we have the right vocabulary yet. No, I really don't. And I also think that I worry 
well, I worry a lot because I'm just a worrier, but, um, you know, the, what is going to happen in this moment? And there's always kind of like, there already is like a backlash and a frontlash and another backlash about like whether or not this is a witch hunt and whether or not we're f- having a moral flattening of things. You know, and like you said yourself, like there's a, there is a scale of, of awfulness here. Mm-hmm. And we've had all kinds of awfulness, come, you know, be revealed. Like we've had both kind of what I would assume is the lowest of the low, which is child molestation. I thought we could all agree on that as being bad, you know, um, apparently that's still up in the air for some people. Uh, and then on the other side, um, things that are more um, less explicitly bad. Yes, that's a good, that's a perfect way to describe it. Less explicitly bad. Less explicitly bad. And people are like, we can't talk about them in the same breath. And we, well, and yet I kind of feel like we're going to have to like, until people realize how pervasive this is, well, it's, and how it's, it's gonna, part of the same right, culture, I right. think, even if the expressions are wildly different. Yeah, yeah. And that it is it is part of the same culture. It is on the same spectrum. And that until you know uh, how pervasive this is, the distinction between the very worst and the least bad will seem kind of weird. Like it will be hard to make that distinction. Yeah. Because we don't have the whole, the whole spectrum is not populated yet. Do you know what I mean? Like right now, if there's black and like, let's say there's black and gray, right? We have like totally black. And then we have like kind of a light gray. I'm not going to say there's any white on the spectrum. (laughs) (laughs) And, and not all the other phases have been filled in. So of course it feels like we're doing some moral flattening. Well, and I think there's also not, okay, I'm going to seize on, on language here, but in a weird way, like, When I wrote this piece, I could only write this piece because I'm almost 42. I'm the host of my own show. I have a boss who said, yeah, go for it. Totally. Mm -hmm. I stand behind you. And I'm powerful enough that I could write it and it doesn't matter. Right. And it's like, I'm white. I'm well off. I'm well educated. All of those things are working in my favor. And I think that has given many survivors strength to talk about this. We are like at the very, very, yep. very tip of the iceberg of people having these conversations. Right. Be- because they feel, the, many of the people who say this now finally feel comfortable enough to say it. Right. And I also feel like the people coming forward, like there is only kind of two stories that we we allow people to tell, which is like the very, very worst and like the kind of not worst. You know, yep. like there's not a lot of other people filling in those stories because they either have so much shame but say, oh, well, that isn't as bad as it, but it wasn't as bad as that. As that, you know, right. or they can come forward and talk about it because it, it wasn't as invasive. It wasn't as explicit. And you're also right about the privilege part of it. Um, I actually always, uh, I try to remember, I don't always do this because it's a little uncomfortable to seize on this language. But when people say people are, uh, oh, these women are so brave for coming forward. I don't want to fetishize their bravery too much because it's not as though the women who don't come forward are cowards. Totally. Like we can call those women that come forward brave because we want to honor them. And I get that. But there are lots of women who have lots of bravery because they fucking just got through their life, but who may not come forward. Yeah. Like put food on the table and did all the normal things. Yeah. Like that is their bravery. And they may never come forward. And there should be no sense that that is any there's shame involved with not coming forward, you know, like someone like I don't name like I don't name some of the, the, the two. There's more, what we have a person in in common, I think maybe more than one person in common. Um, and I haven't given names and I, I people are like, why won't you name names? Like, 
And I'm like, because I, you know what? There's lots of good reasons not to. Like There are lots of good reasons <laughs> not to. And I guess one of the... Um, one of the things that to me was most important actually was that in some ways the names don't matter. Yeah. Because it it it, it was the the, totality the culture of the experience and really the sort of like the banality of it. Like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, that guy. Oh well, yeah, I guess I gotta wear, you know, as frumpy clothing as possible so I can go get a quote from him. Yeah. And like, the, like, I can't believe how many men have been like, oh, I didn't realize photo op groping was a thing. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a thing. It's totally a thing. I will say I'm actually very, I'm, I'm very pleased by uh, the response that I have gotten from a lot of male friends who I think were not aware of this of this kind of in-between stuff that mm-hmm. you and I are talking about who were sort of like, oh, yeah, I guess I realized that going back to alcohol, that so-and-so was kind of a sloppy drunk. Or I guess I realized that that must be hard to do your job as a journalist when, you know, someone is looking at you as an object. But I... I I got a lot of that from male friends, and I'm glad they read this and engaged with it. So, you know, I like, didn't actually think about it that way, and I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was nice. That meant a lot to me, actually. Yeah, it does mean a lot. So, uh, you know, I used to be an employee of places, but that is now a thing of the past. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I am a sole proprietor, operator person now. I am a contractor to everything, including this show, I am basically my own small business, and that is why I use stamps.com. They are basically designed for people like me, maybe like you. If you're running a business that is just you out of your house, you can have all the efficiency of a dedicated mail office, uh, but just, you know, for yourself. Uh, They will send you a scale that you can start using. You can print your postage at home. Uh, if you're operating your own business, you know that going to the post office is just a huge time suck and stamps.com takes care of that. They bring you all the services of any U.S. post office right to your fingertips. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. And then the mailman picks it up. It's that easy. Again, they will send you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage, and they will help you decide the best class of mail every time. You can print any day, any time, and right now you can enjoy their services with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and the digital scale with no long-term commitments. Avoid the craziness of the holidays at the post office. Go to stamps.com and click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in friends. That's stamps.com microphone at the top of the homepage and enter friends stamps.com never go to the post office again i still feel i like we're figuring out the place of you know where and how these conversations with men and between men are going to happen um i think between men's the big one i really do yeah and i think and before I, someone jumps in like is they're yelling at your podcast not all men yes, not I all know, men I of hear course you. yeah but like also I that there's you. not just a binary too like that's the other important right. thing it's it, when we're talking about the scale is that I feel like a lot of men want to be deemed one of the good guys and it's not about like whether you're good or bad yeah not it, at all 
<laughs> it's that do you take responsibility for for what you may have done? You know, like there's all there's a lot of like hand wringing about like, well, well, I didn't mean. You know, what if I? What if it turns out I did something that somebody took the wrong way? And and my response to that is like that may have happened, and it doesn't make you a bad person. It just means you need to maybe you need to. There's apology in order, you know. Yeah. Um, if maybe you need to have a conversation, maybe you just need to think about how you behaved and how you behave in the future. Yeah. And, and, and talk with your guy friends and th- create a space for, for men who consider themselves to be good guys to talk about what they may have done, you know, cause like, I don't think, I think this is, we, I just had a conversation with Adam Serwer about, um, white supremacy and this this is and we talked about the parallels between white supremacy and patriarchy and one of them is that you can be a part of it and not have like person you're still a part of it even if you haven't been one of the worst actors you know like you still contributed some tiny bit to the wall to the edifice of this system that we're all trying to deconstruct you know, I, I have a, a brother who's a playwright and he wrote this play called Hashtag Bros. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm saying hashtag, but, you know, there's a hashtag yeah. and it's bros. But it's about a group of men who work for a website called uh, sensitivebro.com. <laughs> and so they're all like super woke, really sensitive dudes. And yet there's a lot of kind of misogyny and general awfulness around. So it's kind of fascinating that he had written this play last year. And I'm like, mm. hey, Jake, that line you wrote. And he's like, yeah, I know. So we've talked about this a ton mm. and kind of where individual men, perhaps unwittingly, sort of fit in the firmament of patriarchy. Yeah. And it it's going to take, like I, I said in another show, like you might feel a pinch, you yeah. know, like you might. It's okay. Yeah. And the point is to keep then working on who you are and how you behave like in this system, right? Like it's not possible. It, the One of the valuable lessons I've learned in the past year is that, you know, just because I have friends who are people of color doesn't mean that I won't say racist things. Yeah. You know, like sometimes I'm going to say shit that is maybe a little bit racist, maybe a lot racist, you know? And I have to just kind of like hear that feedback when it happens. And that's part of the good. That's one reason why you want a lot of friends who are diverse, you know, <laughs> like is so you you've learned that about yourself. Right. It's not so that you're inured from criticism. Like you, I can't be a racist. I have a black friend. Right. This isn't the some of my best friends are black. Yeah. No, I, you're I think you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. I, you know, I went, I went to a, a Quaker school growing up and there's this um thing that they used to teach us to do, which was to sit with a concept or a feeling or an idea and not decide on it either way, just to let it like kind of hang out in your consciousness. Mm -hmm. And it's very, you know, hippy dippy. And we were sort of taught this and I don't know, probably like 1985. But it still stays with me when I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to sit with the uncomfortable feeling Mm -hmm. and just let it hang out, even though I don't like it. Yeah. And just be uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, uh, saying in the show, discomfort is a tool of oppression. Um, people people use discomfort as a way of enforcing the systems of hegemony that we're not supposed to see. Because um, when we see them, we become uncomfortable. And we want to avoid that at all costs. So yeah. safer not to see. 
So yeah, I encourage. I do think it means okay to have a conversation where you might say something wrong. That's that's okay. It might be not fun, but you know, okay. Yeah, exactly. And you might hear something about yourself that you don't want to hear, um, and that may and that may deserve to be pushed back on, right? About yeah, yeah, your, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you still need to have that conversation. Yeah, men need to talk to women, and they need to talk to each other. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I'm I'm still hopeful about this moment. Um, do you think it's do you is this a turning point moment, or do we not know yet? I oh, no, I'm interviewing you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fine. I, I think. Well, I, I'm going to say we don't know because I I learned in this past year to not make any predictions about anything. Yeah. Um, but I do think if if nothing else, uh, this has raised women's awareness about what happens to them. Uh, yes, and in fact, like I'm going to include the number for Rain, the Rape Abuse Incest National Network, oh, um, in the intro and after we get done talking too, because. What Tracy, our pal Tracy, has told yep. me she's involved with them is that they have seen in this past year every time something like this happens, their calls to their hotline go up, and people like remember or come to terms with or are re- get ready to talk about something that had happened to them, and yeah. that is definitely happening. And also, people are doing the reevaluation, exactly the reevaluation that you and I are doing, and. That is valuable and important. And I am hoping that the women who are coming up in the generation now just don't don't shrug off what we shrugged off, basically. I hope so, too. I mean, I, I went for I don't even run very much anymore because I have like bad old lady joints. And I went for a run after this piece because I was like, yeah, I want to get it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this very physical reaction. Uh, because I did, I had that kind of like, oh God, I'm living all of, reliving all these things in my body. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's where, well, because that's where it happened. Yeah. I mean, yep. that's the, uh, that's the ultimate thing. And the thing I, I just tried to explain to the pod save guys, which is that like, you have to guys have to understand that like behind all of this stuff is the threat of rape. Mm-hmm. Like it's not just sexual advances. Like, it's not just like it's weird to be touched in a way that is uh, around your secondary, you know, erogenous zones, <laughs> zones. But, you know, it's that touch buried in that touch is the threat of rape. And that is the way that women have to live is to think about that. And there is something I think very well, I don't know about for you, but for me, very vulnerable about thinking about that when you have spent you know, almost 20 years building a professional persona of doing good work and wanting the story to be the end product and the thing that gets the highlights and that, you know, I just spent a week reporting in Puerto Rico. Like, that that's where I want the focus to be. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to be like the sexual harassment lady. Right. But also, I'm willing to be the sexual harassment lady because I don't want that to happen to my APs. Right. Yeah, I mean, it may, and it that may be the thing that comes out of this is that one of the things that can happen is that if enough of us come forward to be the sexual harassment lady, then it stops having that meaning, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what I hope is happening, you know. Me too. And not necessarily women coming me forward too. who have oh, the platforms. Me too. <laughs> not coming forward, not necessarily women like you and me who have platforms, but I am hoping that there are women who are of you know our age um, who are talking with their colleagues in their break rooms, you know, um, over coffee 
and sharing their experience in the same way that we're doing it to let to let them know this happened to me and it doesn't have to happen to you. Or if it happens to you, like I I I don't I think you should be affirmed that it's objectionable and that you have actions that you can take. Yeah. And that I will have your back. And that I will have your back. Um and yeah, that is the that's to me, that's the power of me too. It's not that like, oh my God, it's just so prevalent. It's that if it's that prevalent, then it stops having power. Yeah. The being the sexual yeah. harassment lady, you know? Totally. Ooh. Thank you for joining us, Lizzie. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to you. Yeah. And uh, I reintroduced the host of Marketplace Weekend. You have some a special on Puerto Rico coming up. And also, oh yeah, uh, I know that you have a dog and that people should follow you on Twitter. Because her name of, is Mara Jade and I love her. She is, she is beautiful. And you. Uh, you cannot post too many pictures of her. So I do it a lot. <laughs> so listen to Lizzie and follow her on Twitter. Thank you very much. And that is it for the show. All you super fans that listen to the closing. Hey, how you doing? Uh, I assume you have already gone to iTunes to rate and review the show. Uh, Maybe you should get your friends that have not listened to the end of shows to do that. And if you have made it as far in the show, you also may want to hear this. If you have experienced any kind of sexual violence and you are thinking about it and you want to talk to someone, you want to explore the idea. Remember, you are not alone, and I believe you. Other people believe you. And you can get help at the National Sexual Assault Hotline, run by RAIN, as I mentioned, the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network. That number, 800-656-HOPE. 800-656-HOPE. Be well. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song, a boiling river in the Amazon, a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.